course, like every other teenage kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. When I was 16 years old, I took off and drove across the country to Wyoming, went into the Wind River Range and discovered mountains. In 1973, Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia. I never wanted to be a businessman. All I wanted to do was do my craft and climb mountains. So then I had to figure out a way to where I was going to be a businessman, but I was going to do it completely on my own terms. Build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Join us at Patagonia.com. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Then Beer, with additional support from New Belgium Brewing and Kuatrax. The first thing he says to me is, oh, you're going to hate me. And I go, why? You know, (laughs) what's up? He's like, you're going to hate me for getting you into this. Like, for bringing you down here, you're going to hate me for bringing you here. And that's just like a hell of a thing to hear the first second you meet your new boss. This is Matt McKee. It was May of 2005 when he found himself sitting for the first time across from a man named Glenn. This was his new boss. Matt was in Santiago, Chile. In 12 hours, they would drive to Minera Pimentón, a gold mine tucked deep within the Chilean Andes, where Matt planned to spend the next four to five months. And I start to, that's the first inkling of like, what, what I get myself into. Now, I've never, I've never had a job in another country. I've never had my boss tell me the first time I met him that I'm going to hate him for tricking me into working for them. But I can relate to Matt's feeling. As someone who's basically made a career of getting in over his head and figuring out how to make it work, I experience total panic at least once a month, maybe twice. And I hate that about my job. But when it's all said and done, I also kind of know that that's what makes my job special. Basically, this is type three fun for your career. While you're in the middle of it, all you can think about is getting through it, but afterwards, something strange happens. As you look back at the memory, with enough time, the fear, the discomfort, the wishing you were anywhere else feeling erodes away. And what's left? A story, glazed in a coat of nostalgia. Today, we bring you El Avalanchisto, a story about a snow geek's dream job and the nightmare it turned into. This is the story of trying to protect 150 skeptical miners from a mountain that seemed determined to bury them. Let's hope we make it out alive. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. I didn't have a lot of obligations otherwise at the time, you know, no girlfriend, uh, Nothing much going on there, so it's just like kind of come and go as I pleased. And yeah, after 15 minutes, um, that was sounding good to me. You know, I was going to be making the same as uh, framing houses all summer in the 100 degree heat in Utah. It's like might as well try something different for for a change. You know. Two weeks before he met Glenn and Santiago, Matt caught wind of the avalanche forecasting position through his ski patrolling boss. Someone had bailed last minute, and they needed an experienced avalanche forecaster. Fast. 
During the North American winters, Matt works a similar position for both Alta Ski Resort and the Utah Department of Transportation. He determines when a slope might avalanche, gets people out of the way, and then, when he can, triggers an avalanche intentionally so that no one gets caught inadvertently. Working in the snow year-round sounded like a dream. So, after a 15-minute phone interview with Glenn, Matt accepted the position. He spent the next two weeks getting his passport, applying for a work visa, subletting his apartment, trying to learn Spanish, and packing. Then, he flew to Chile. Yeah, the position sounded uh, really cool. And I guess later on, I was kicking myself for not uh, doing a little more research, but I really don't know what I would have come up with. The morning after Matt arrived, he and Glenn set off up the steep, dirt roads that wind up into the Andes. The drive takes an entire day, although as the crow flies, Minera Pimentón sits only about 60 miles outside of Santiago. And you drive, and you drive, and there's cactus, and there's these cattle on the Chileno slopes that look like big dogs. I mean, skinny, skinny cattle that um, are eating pretty much cactus. I mean, pretty rugged dirt, cactus. And you just keep driving up and driving up, and there's no trees or anything. And then all of a sudden, you just hit the snow line. As they climbed, the road began to pass under slopes that Matt recognized as slide paths. Swaths of mountainside that, with enough snow, could produce avalanches large enough to bury a vehicle driving by at the wrong time. Or, in any case, to block their path out of the mountains. And I'm just, like point things out like what do we do about that path what do we do about that path what do we do about this and he's like these aren't even in our avalanche atlas like we don't we don't do anything with that i'm like what these giant avalanche paths we're crossing by and there's no plan for them there's they don't even they're not even recognizing them as as a problem they reached the mine nestled into the hillside at eleven thousand feet glenn got matt situated and showed him the mine's forecasting equipment at home, within a couple of miles of his office, Matt has four automated weather stations. Within 10 miles, 20. These stations automatically measure snowfall, water content, temperature, humidity, and wind speed and direction. At the mine, he found himself holding a couple of snow stakes, essentially rulers that measure the depth of the new snow, and a handheld wind meter that recorded wind speed in five-second increments. No weather stations, no other equipment. From that data, he was expected to extrapolate the avalanche hazard at the avalanche starting zones on a ridge 2,000 feet above him and along the 60 miles of snow-covered road that led to the mine. You know, I'd be like forecasting what I'm getting at Alta, and then all of a sudden I got to try to make a forecast for uh, Powder Mountain up in northern Utah. You know, a storm could hit there totally different. Matt discovered a number of other worrisome things in his first couple of days at the mine. A number of buildings sat in the middle of slide paths, including the explosives cache. So if it actually snowed enough that he would need the explosives, Matt wouldn't be able to get to them safely. And when he looked into the cache itself, he discovered that he only had 20 rounds of explosives for his 10-day shift. Five major avalanche paths guarded the entrance to the mine. In order to keep the mine open during a heavy storm, Matt could easily run through that many explosives in a day or two. I was just like, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this alive. 
When Minera Pimentón opened, they only operated during the summers. That way they could avoid the Andean winters and the avalanche problems that came with them. Regardless, in the winter of 2003, an avalanche hit the unoccupied mining camp, crushing an 8,000-square-foot building like a tin can. Over the next few years, the company found additional investors to cover the cost of rebuilding camp and restarting operations, but only under the condition that the mine operate year-round. The year before Matt took the job, Minero Pimentón operated through their first winter. Glenn and one other guy worked as avalanche forecasters. Glenn worked as a ski guide back in the States, so he had a sense of how underprepared the mine was to deal with a lot of snow. But everything went fine that winter. Operations proceeded uninterrupted. So the mining company assumed that it would always go that way, that avalanches weren't really a problem for them. They didn't realize that they had had an unusually mild winter. There wasn't enough snow for the forecasters to even go out and do field work. They couldn't go skiing. And they're, they're like thinking they're good to go because they got away with one winter. And I didn't know it, but I was showing up on the eve of like probably a 10-year storm or a 20-year storm. Glenn finished training Matt and headed back to Santiago. The two of them would alternate 10-day shifts at the mine and spend their off time in the city. Matt did convince the mine manager, Matthew, to let him move the explosives to a better location. And then, two days later, it started to snow. And as the snowflakes accumulated, Matt began to understand the full stakes of his situation. Talking to some Canadians that were there doing exploratory drilling, they told me stories about other avalanche forecasters in other places, um, you know, kind of running into this similar thing, ending up in jail because someone someone died. And there, I guess, they look for someone to blame. And so I'm just wondering how the hell I'm going to get out of this thing. He found himself in a predicament. He could make the conservative call. Shut the mine the moment the avalanche hazard started to rise corral everyone into the safety of the mining camp until the snow had settled enough that they could safely return to work. But financially, both the company and the miners needed the mine to stay open as many hours as possible. Matt felt that pressure from the mine manager and the workers. So we let the mine continue to operate longer than he really felt good about. But two days into the storm, he had reached the limits of his comfort zone. And the storm took a turn for the worse, it starts you know, snowing a lot harder, blowing a lot harder. And these guys are exposed at, you know, 11, 12,000 feet with mountains going 14,000 feet above them, driving around on, you know, the roads, just, you know, okay, what if something bad happens, you know? Like, there's no one here to do the rescue but me. It, it's just, it just got to the point where I couldn't be okay with it anymore, you know? So I got out of bed. I put my boots on and walked walked over to the main office. You know, it's probably 10 o'clock at night and uh, talked to the mine manager. Um, he was the, the son of the president of the company, this guy, Matthew. And I was like, dude, I, yeah, you know, I got I to gotta close it down. It's too dangerous. We got to evacuate the mine. And, he, you know, kind of was like, really? You know, and tried to talk me out of it. And, you know, I'm 30 years old at the time. And, you know, this guy's like 40, 45, 
you know, and it's kind of hard to put your foot down, but I was like, yeah, dude, sorry, we got to close it down. And he kind of looked at me and said, all right, we'll, we'll get on the radio and tell him to come back, you know, like it wasn't a big deal. And I went back to bed and I slept. I finally was able to go back to sleep because I wasn't stressed about everybody up in the mine. About, I don't remember, maybe one o'clock in the morning, I get this just pounding on my door. Um, I get out of my shipping container, and I'm like, what's up? And this guy is speaking Spanish to me, but he's basically, I'm not challenging. I'm like, oh, it's all right. You know, everybody's in a safe spot. We don't, you know, it probably is an avalanche, but it's fine. You know, and he's like, no, no, come, come. So I get my clothes on and I come out and get in the truck and we're driving towards the mine. And I'm like, you know trying to talk to these guys like wait we can't go up there why, why are we going up there matt quickly realized that matthew had lied about radioing the miners they had kept working and now someone had been buried in an avalanche a couple of hours after matt had gone to bed one of the workers had gotten into a little toyota pickup to drive to the cache to pick up more mining explosives on his way back to the mine a large avalanche struck the vehicle the snow was light enough that it buried the truck in place rather than sending it tumbling off the side of the road, and the man was able to free himself and start walking toward the mine portal. But in the hundred yards between the buried truck and the entrance to the mine, another avalanche came roaring down the mountain, striking the miner again. And his buddy who was working with him after a while was like, where is he? And he kind of poked his head out, and you could see the truck, you know, that was buried, and he went over there, and he eventually saw this guy's fingers sticking out of the snow. Just his fingers, and he dug them out, and the guy was alive. I, that's when I showed up, and he was coughing, and I'm like, what's wrong with this guy? You know, And they're like, he got hit by an avalanche, and I'm like, what, what, what the hell is going on? He got wait, And so I started to realize that they'd never evacuated the mine, and I'm like, oh my God, well, we got to get out of here. Everyone's got to leave. And then we went back to the mining camp, and, uh, Finally, everybody was everybody was put away and went back to bed. It was probably six in the morning, um, and the storm was still raging. It continued to snow through the next two days. After the incident with the miner, Matthew grudgingly allowed Matt to keep the mine closed until the storm had ended. Ideally, Matt would have fired explosives at the avalanche paths guarding the mine just before shift change. That way, the miners could safely cross the paths to get to work. Once they made it underground, avalanches wouldn't affect them. But because of the limited number of explosives, Matt had to conserve his rounds so he wouldn't run out before the storm ran its course. Meanwhile, the situation at the mining camp was getting more and more tense. They show up to the mining camp. They're away from their family. They don't want to be there, really. And now they're not working. So they're not making any money. And um, that's my fault, right? That's my judgment call. And so these guys really don't like me all of a sudden. Finally, they woke one morning to bluebird skies. Matt roused his team and prepared to fire the avalancher. And I look down and I have like everybody in the mining camp, you know, maybe 
150 guys are all there watching, you know, smoking cigarettes, just like watching the big show. You know, let's see why, why this guy kept his mind closed. We got the shot loaded and pressured up and, uh, we, you know, hit the trigger and went off and hit the slope, blew up. And we got this, uh, really big avalanche that came down, knocked the two trucks that were buried, just tossed them, you know, down the slope. And the big avalanche came and hit the kind of the entry to the bottom of the mine. I'm like, all right. And, and the guys were like ecstatic. They were just chirping, hollering, sharing. It was like this big show. They'd never seen an avalanche before. They had no idea why I was there because they never had avalanches the year before. So they're like, you know, it started to kind of make sense to them. And then I'm like, all right, let's do it again. Let's load up another shot. And we shot it and we brought down another big avalanche that um, hit this shipping container that acted as like a office of the mine. And I, I told the mine manager was like a few days earlier, like, you got to move that office. It's going to end up in the creek. Well, that's where it ended up. It went right into the creek. They shot off three more rounds, each of which triggered another massive slide and more cheers. Then the crowd went trekking off toward the mine, now buried under 20 feet of debris. The miners set to work trying to dig down to the mine portal, but quickly discovered that both their snowblower and their front-end loader needed new parts. A crew spent all night digging with hand shovels and a small motorized scoop, but eventually realized that they wouldn't make it until they could get the parts for their machinery delivered. But it was still my fault that it was closed, so people still hated me. You know, at least in their minds, like, it was my fault that that thing was closed, even though they couldn't physically get there now. It's still my fault. During the calm weather, a helicopter dropped supplies off at the camp, including more explosives. But they didn't have the time to get the machines fixed and the mine dug out before it started snowing again. The mine manager was starting to listen to me because, you know, everything that I said would happen at this point did happen, which is pretty lucky for me or pretty unlucky, I don't know, but it was like kind of cool to to say, hey, you're going to lose that office someday, thinking, you know, in the next five years, that thing will be in the creek, and you're going to lose that exploratory drill rig someday, and you know, a few days later, they're both gone. But I was also covering my ass, because the first time when the miner got buried, I, I realized, like, I told him to close the mine, he didn't, but I had no paper trail, no electronic trail, no nothing thing that conversation ever took place like if that guy would have died moving on the court i don't know what would have happened but so i started to cover my ass and i would email myself i'd email my bosses back here in the states um you know for my other job just so they had you know record of what had happened in case something bad happened well matt put contingency plans into play it kept snowing and the longer the mine stayed closed the more disgruntled the miners became it was all my fault. The snow was my fault. They'd ask me, "Mas nieve?" and I'd say, "Sí, mucho, mucho más nieve." And it'd just be like, I mean, I thought I was gonna have a, a full metal jacket style blanket party. You know, I I slept with my my ice axe in my bed. I locked the door. I you know had my knife at my side. But as the snow continued to fall heavily over the next six days, Matt began to have even bigger concerns than the army of angry miners or getting the mine back open. 
I was starting to really not be happy. It was kind of survival mode at this point. I was running out of avalanche rounds. I was trying now to protect the camp. I was shooting on the same side of the valley as us, trying to knock avalanches down above us, which sounds kind of dumb, but it actually, you're trying to keep the avalanches small to prevent that really big guy from loading up. Even though we had that berm that was protecting us, I started to envision that berm being like a way to get the avalanche airborne and then just slam down on the camp. So me and my artillery arrows would get up every few hours and shoot a couple rounds. I remember it snowed about nine feet. We weren't done though, so the last part of the storm came in like the heaviest snow I've ever seen, three feet of snow on top of that nine nine feet of light snow, which is like the perfect recipe for massive avalanches. Matt and his crew continued to shoot explosives through the rest of the night in order to protect the camp, though they couldn't see or hear their results through the darkness and the storm. And then, like someone flipped a giant light switch, the very next day, the storm switched off. The sun came out, the avalanche dangers subsided, and Matt put on his skis to survey the wreckage. The multi-million dollar exploratory drill rig had been totaled. A maintenance shed got hit, scattering thousands of oil drums down the canyon into the river. The mine lay buried under about 40 feet of snow. It grew apparent that no one cared about getting the mine open anymore. Everyone just wanted to get out before the next storm hit. But now they had 60 miles of road, covered in 12 feet of snow, separating them from the rest of the world. As the road crew started tunneling out, they quickly encountered piles of debris from the nameless slide paths Matt had identified on the way in blocking their way. And these things were running from like 15,000 feet down to like 6,000 feet and burying the road a mile wide, you know, 30, 40, 50 feet deep. With another storm approaching, the crew abandoned the idea of clearing the road and just started driving over the giant mounds of snow to pack down a path for the miners to get out. So we were stuck up there, running out of food. We were out of avalanche rounds. Um, I think I was the only guy that didn't smoke cigarettes. And uh, it's everyone there smoking and running out of cities. Um, meanwhile, there's, you know, this kind of mutiny going on in the mining camp. People are starting to get really freaked out. You know, another storm is kind of starting to brew in the Pacific. You know, everyone's starting to lose it. We had people calling like a local radio station in Chile telling them, we're, this mine, we're trapped up here. Nearly a week later, the road crew finally managed to pack out a path for the miners. And we started at probably like 11 in the morning. We drove this huge convoy with like Unimogs and Toyota trucks and just anything that would go. And we evacuated the whole mine, everything. Everybody left. We even brought the mine dogs with us who spent their whole life up there. The convoy made it 40 miles down the road before it started snowing again. And yeah, it was like the, the one storm we were trying to beat to get out of there. And we were coming down the Cumbre and it was dumping and... Nothing happened. We made it. Everybody was really happy. I mean, ecstatic. People were jumping for joy, like, you know, we just won some war or something. When did the creature tells for you? Wheels his bloody flank to run you through. Oh, mercy, Lord have mercy. 
By the time Matt and the miners finally made it to the city, a month had passed. Matt spent the rest of the summer in Santiago, filling out insurance reports for the mine. I remember the CEO talking to me when I was leaving and saying, hey, we'll be calling you next year. And I, you know, told him point blank, like, I'm not coming back, you know. And we kind of agreed that you don't have to say you're coming back, but don't say you're not coming back. And I said, all right, that's fair. Because you can't break me. Because you can't break me. At the time, I thought I wouldn't come back, but I I think I would have. Matt says would have, because it took Minera Pimentón another five years to reopen. You know, I'm a dad now. I'm married. I'm a boss in my current job. I, I, I wouldn't go back now just because of that. But, uh, you know, um, if, if, if things were different, I, I would say I probably would go back. Um, it would have been nice to finish what I started. There's so much there that I hadn't gotten a chance to do because we were in survival mode. Ah, time heals all wounds, and you start, you know, putting together a slideshow to show show some of your coworkers, and, and they're just thinking it's the coolest thing they've ever heard of. And I guess some of that starts to rub off on you, like, hey, maybe, you know, it was a little rough, but it probably wouldn't be that bad again. And there's a lot of cool, a lot of good stuff about it. It was just I probably hit it as bad as you could. You know, now I feel like I'm lucky that I got to be a part of that and learn from it and get get away with it, really. We were doing all we could to stay alive, and um, we did. And, you know, part of it was luck. Part of it was hard work. And part of it was what I actually knew about what I was doing. Thanks, Matt, for sharing the story of your crazy Chilean winter. Though Matt didn't return to Chile, he still keeps people safe from avalanches in Utah, under slightly less hectic circumstances. Music Today by Black Pistol Fire, Woodrow Gerber, M Freak, Vienna Ditto, and A Crooked Pulse, courtesy of Mevio's Music Alley, or Free Music Archive. Additional music composed by Amy Stolzenbach. You keep the diaries thriving. We delivered nearly a million downloads last year, and that's a lot. Seriously, it's a lot. It took us over four years to reach the first million, and now we're doing that each year. And we want to blow that number away. So share the podcast with your friends, with your students, with the person you think might have a dirtbag soul. Thanks for continuing to tune in. Support for the Diaries comes from Patagonia. We're excited to announce that Duct Tape and Beer's newest film, Force, will debut online March 9th. We used footage shot by multiple climbers over the past five years to tell the story of photographer and climber Mikey Schaefer's enduring relationship with climbing in Patagonia. Watch it at patagonia.com. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks, the little company who believe they could build a better bike rack. Visit them online at kuatracks.com. And New Belgium Brewing, who encourages you to follow your folly. Find their newest brew, Slow Ride, at your local taproom and at your grocery stores. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul and Becca Cahal. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Hey.